Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Show Your Work, and we have a little bit of a work talk setup um, in terms of how we're going to do this podcast for the I mean, first time. romance us into it a little bit. You didn't even tell us what number podcast it was. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I've lost track. Uh, that's great. That's good that we're racking them up that way. Um, yeah, we were so overwhelmed by stories today that we decided to... Jump in and try, I think we have five. We have five stories today. We normally have four. And if, well, we're both talkers and tangent talkers. So what we want to do is keep ourselves to schedule so that you're not listening to a five-hour podcast. I mean, yeah. And, you know, that we're not having a lengthy preamble. Although I got a lot of notes about our grammar talk last week. So... Maybe we'll just have an all-grammar hour some other time. Oh, can you pepper that into today's podcast? Sure. Like when we – maybe that's what we should do is correct each other – maybe that's what we should do is correct each other's grammar along the way. I thought you wanted it to be a short podcast. <laughs> um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to set a timer of 15 minutes for every topic. So when you hear that go off, it means we're out of time. But that's FYI what the sound is going to be. But we might just blow past it if it's good enough. Yes. I mean, <laughs> again, now we're already building it and out for ourselves. Yasik is making the face like, then what the fuck are you doing this for? <laughs> I uh, didn't know you were going to set the timer live on air. I thought it was a secret psychological thing, like the countdown, you know, in, in uh, Sunset Strip. Yeah. But if you're doing this for everybody to hear. Yes. Let's do that. Okay. So why don't we jump into our first topic? Why don't we fast forward us so we're talking at like 1.5 times the speed so we have time to <laughs> say everything we want to say? So we're going to start the first topic. Um, it's now like a game <laughs> show. Like, is it going to be like, I'll say the topic and then I'll start the timer? Yeah, and your time starts. <laughs> so do we, do we get the time to start after the subject is introduced or do we start the timer then introduce the subject? See, now, like, fuck, we, now you're listening to us debate logistics, which is how Duanna and I routinely blow time. <laughs> no, I mean, God, we can blow time any old way. But, no, I think you have to introduce the topic, set it up, lay the players on the stage. Okay. Although, that's my preference. However, if we were sticking to the letter of the law and 15 minutes per topic, then the introduction should be within those 15. All right. Let's, Which you want to try? Let's abide by the law. For the first one and then see how we do. <laughs> okay. Ready? Right. I'm and starting the timer now. Go. So last week we talked about Emma Stone's uh, deal with Louis Vuitton and then we expanded that into a conversation about style and the business of style in Hollywood. We did not know 
because, you know, we are not deeply embedded with The Hollywood Reporter. But we did not know that The Hollywood Reporter was actually putting together the final touches on their annual power stylists list issue. Um, and we did not know that for the first time ever they would be introducing the stylist roundtable. So this is like the director's roundtable or the Emmy roundtable that we've heard of, that we've like talked about, and sometimes they release the video, which is amazing. Uh, but this is the first roundtable of stylists. And what's interesting about that, there's a million interesting things, but none of these are really household names yet. They are stylists to household names. They're people that you know and who have created looks that you know, but they're not names where when they're just being listed by their surname, they jump off the page at you yet. To my credit, I just said that, to my credit, um, I will say that if you read Laney Gossip regularly, you for the last couple of years will be familiar with Law Roach. Sure. Um, but that's again, to my credit. But that's, <laughs> unless, if we're, that's establishing Laney Gossip as a household. <laughs> and I think the- As the, people tw- like press pause and turn away from this podcast. I anyway. think, the, yeah, I think the goal is like, yeah, it, are they people who your aunt would know when mm-hmm. they're like, have you seen this movie? No, yeah. not yet. So, so why don't we talk about who these people are? So the five stylists who are at this roundtable uh, for the Hollywood Reporter are uh, Tara Swennen, Jean Yang. Uh, I got to pause you because, of course, Jean Yang was uh, the other half of the clothing line that Katie Holmes had for a minute and a half there, yes. right? And was uh, Katie stylist? Preceding that. Right. Um, so, uh, Law Roach, Jean Yang, Tara Swennen, Ilaria Urbanati, and Jason Bolden. And I think it just as importantly, you want to talk about some of their highest profile clients, right? So, this award season, which is kind of how it focused, uh, Jason Bolden was working with Ava DuVernay, Law Roach was working with Mary J. Blige, uh, Tara Swennen working with Allison Janney. Ilaria Urbanati, uh, the only other time I've heard that name is on Nia Vardalos' daughter, uh, was working with Army Hammer, and Jean Yang was working with Kumail Nanjiani. So that's interesting, too, that there are two high-profile men, or high-profile this season, who were included in the conversation. Yeah. And so I've already written a few things about this piece, about this roundtable, specifically how it relates to celebrity. And going on and on, as usual, pounding that point home about how style is critical now, especially now, to a person's success and how that's built into the strategy of building uh, an image, building a career. Uh, Law Roach actually gets pretty specific about this with respect to Zendaya and how he and Zendaya, he says, made themselves. Both, he says, basically, Zendaya and I made ourselves Uh, through her looks, and they were able to not have to work with major labels and major designers. So um, I kind of want to focus, and I don't know how you feel about this, on this conversation on the actual job of the stylist, because this was work porn in terms of what their day-to-day looks like and what their compensation looks like. Well, that was the most interesting part to me, is because I think what's interesting is we talked about them a few minutes ago in the context of awards season, and that's only one part of the gig to work on an awards show run. 
Uh, but the relationships that you're talking about with Zendaya, who is not an award season contender, uh, she was around uh, for The Greatest Showman, but not a big player. Uh, the relationships that are established are often how these people make their careers, right? Whereas working on an award show run is more of a, a studio line item. It's a yeah. budget line item. Well, let's start there and the studio because as they explain, because, you know, the common thing, the common thing, right, uh, that you hear during red carpets on Twitter or on our inbox or in our inbox is they should fire their stylist. And not to say, I mean, this is not being patronizing at all, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. We hear from the stylists in this roundtable that sometimes their paycheck actually comes directly from the studio. Right. Because if you are hired to promote, say, I, Tanya, for example, or for the studio doing an awards season push for I, Tanya, there would be a a per appearance fee or a per month or whatever it is, as long as the movie's still in contention, yeah. to make sure that whoever you're working with is representing the movie properly. Right. That's different than if you're working with Zendaya, for example. Right. And crafting an image with her over many months, years, projects that yeah. cross many studios. So one of the keys to understanding why this is critical, their paycheck in these cases comes from the studio, is because that way is because in that sense, it's business and it's part of a larger package. When the studio is cutting the paycheck, it means that there's an entire team around the look of a celebrity. So there's a great line in, in this roundtable where uh, one of the stylists talk about um, all the opinions that they have to consider. So it's really not just the stylist working with the celebrity. The manager has a say. The agent has a say. And of course, the studio has a say. Because if you're styling someone for an award season run, it's part and parcel of an award season campaign, which many campaigns hire campaign strategists. What they wear is part of that entire campaign that can last. I mean, listen, Get Out's campaign was a year long. Um, so this is why it's not just what happens in the dressing room between Mary J. Blige and La Roach. A lot of people have a lot of opinions. Looks are photographed. They're sent to the managers, the agents, the campaign manager for the Oscars, and then the studio fronting and supporting that Oscar campaign. Well, and to further complicate matters, what I love about the sentence that you're referring to, they say, yeah, the manager, the agent, the designer, but also included is the boyfriend. Uh -huh. There's all these ephemeral factors because what you're dealing with is on one hand, an aspect of the business, a marketing package. On the other hand, it's a real human being with opinions and ideas and, you know, voices that they listen to. So it's really interesting that that was probably the most interesting part of this article to me is that the personalities of the stars involved were a relatively minor part of the conversation. You mm -hmm. would think that this would all be about, well, Mary J. Blige likes this and Allison Janney likes that. And that was a little bit of it, but the politics and the shenanigans and the shuffling yeah. was a much, much bigger part. I agree. One of the parts that I liked most that you were really talking about a lot uh, a couple of months ago was the the blackout mm -hmm. uh, for the Golden Globes when everybody did wear black and the debate about what that was going to look like. And they get really um, 
specific about kind of the black dress shuffle, right? Because the rules don't change otherwise. You're not suddenly wearing something from H&M unless you're doing a Sharon Stone many years ago. But for the most part, they are shuffling over the same designer black dresses, but now only X number of them come in black or look great in black, or can you make that beautiful green design in black? Uh, So that was possibly, to me, the most heart-stopping part of it. Yeah, I I, I love that part of it. And I also loved how they took pride in that, you know, they describe it, the intensity, they describe the process of it, they describe um, what they were able to achieve. They describe it as having been part of, it sounds like a really, really, really intense period. Like they've just come out of battle. Um, and it would be for them. You really do get the sense after after this that it was a scramble. They didn't have much time. And there was added pressure in terms of what if, because this had never been done before, what if certain all-black-themed requirements um, didn't include metallic embellishments and didn't include, oh, you couldn't have like a red, a little red stripe, and what would happen to your client? Would they be uh, vilified on social media? So it really speaks to the fact that that they, I mean, they themselves want to really articulate in this piece that they don't, they don't just go shopping. Right. And that it's a collective decision. A stylist is not just about the dress and that's your point. It's about the entire vibe that you feel. There's a quote where they point out that Ava DuVernay uh, originally heard that the blackout included no makeup and no jewelry, that it was supposed to be a much more austere situation. Uh, and she was told, yeah, we're doing makeup and jewelry. Like, yeah. so that's a, a kind of a cute point. But the point here is that the stylist is trying really hard to create a look and justify their job and their fee, more on that in a minute, to the studio, right? Like yeah. they're, they have to deliver something, but they're not just fighting with a PowerPoint. They're fighting in some cases with a live breathing mm-hmm. person. Well, let's talk about the fee. You brought it up, and one of the headlines for this piece is losing money on award season. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that is really three or four months of the stylist's job, but it is probably the most critical three or four months. And all of them talk about, and there's so many interesting things here, all of them talk about the fact that during award season, again, they lose money because time is money. They have assistants and they have people that they have to pay, tailors or whatever, Um, and that oftentimes the rate that they get from the studio hiring them for these campaigns, hiring them for award season is not enough. One of the standout things that, that came out to me in terms of why they do it is one of them says, you know what, I was making like a hundred times more when I was working on music videos. Um... But I'm doing this for the prestige. But the why of it, the why they were making more on music videos was what brought it home for me because it was a little confusing. Basically, what they talk about is say you're doing a music video for some musician who's or some like, you know, new diva, whatever. Let's say it was uh, my favorite forgotten R&B band, 3LW. Um, And the budget is huge partly because... Designers don't want to dress people who are not 
super, super A-list. So there's no expectation of a loan, of a gimme, right? You know that included in that massive budget, you're going to buy the clothes. You're going to acquire them. There's no shenanigans, Mm -hmm. as we talked about. Then on projects like this, the stakes are much higher. The budgets are much higher. But what you're looking for is for Gucci or Balenciaga or whomever to deign to dress your star, to say, yes, that person is our brand, and yes, we will give you one of our coveted three or four showstopper dresses from the runway this season. So, and that's all a a handshake, essentially, right? That's all done for free. It's not a fee because the cross-promotion between the star and the brand is so huge. So the budget is less, and then there are a lot of kind of ancillary costs with yeah. sub, you know, assistance and and pressing and alterations and those kinds of things. Well, and it also speaks again to how, and I'm going to hit this again, this point, it all speaks to, listen, these people, as they say, are losing money. And so when you're a celebrity and you walk out there and you're like, please don't ask me about what I'm wearing, fuck you. Right. I fuck mean, you. Yeah, and I I think, though, you know, I have to make a point, though. As much as I agree with you and as much as I will delight in rolling my eyes at Blake Lively as long as the day is long, I think that's more rare than not, right? The more savvy stars, the ones we've seen stick around for years, know that this is a part of the game. Even if it's a pretty recent part of the game, I think everybody acknowledges that, say, 20 years ago, This was not the case, right? The style game has ratcheted up in the last 10, 15 years on the red carpet where before they did buy things off the rack or they did... Oh, there's our 15-minute timer. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about this. Let's keep going and see how how much more time we kill. Yasik is booing us. Well, look, we haven't even discussed edits that may happen. We're not an edit-heavy podcast. You know this because you hear us laugh and giggle and whatnot. Mostly what you hear is what you get, but uh, there may have been a couple of coughs in there that we're going to cut out. That buys us 45 seconds. Yep. So anyway, the game has changed. I think most stars do know that. What I was most kind of The thing that gave me the most pause in this article, though, I have to say, was the ways that the game has not changed. Do you know what I mean? I was really focused on there are a couple of different quotes here about the fact that the dress you're sent by the designer is almost always a size two. Yep. That it's a problem if the actress, the director, the whomever, they say she in the quote, it's a problem if she uh, had too much to drink last night and can't fit into the dress. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a discussion of how wonderful it is that Ava DuVernay has become kind of a style icon despite not being a typical size. Yeah. It kind of bummed me out because we're making a lot of lip service towards being inclusive and having a variety of different kinds of bodies and different kinds of people on the red carpet. And this extends to the diversity conversation. You know, part of having a part of having a diverse slate of actors and performers is not just that the faces will be different, but that 
there are differences in bodies that we haven't seen when everybody was a willowy, wasp-descended white person. So the fact that those standards still existed, that there weren't other sizes, was a little more uh, a little more of a of a reality check than I was hoping for. I was I was a little bit a little bit bummed. That's the only word I can think of to use there to still describe that. Oh God, if she had an extra glass of wine, it's a tragedy. I don't know. Am I am I being naive here? I mean, I didn't, I didn't take it like that. Uh, the extra glass of wine part, I, I took it as, and maybe that's my internalized um, body dysmorphia, where I, I actually related to that. I found that relatable. Like, if there is, that is something I worry about. Like my, for example, most recently, my Oscar suit was tailored to within an inch of my life. Right. And so, if I had in the three days preceding the Oscars had a lot of salt and drank a lot. I had some worries, especially because the way that the suit was laid out in front, there was a very delicate little button, which you tried to like <laughs> hook on for me when oh, you yeah. were dressing me that morning that kept popping open. I get it. I do. And I get that no matter what size somebody is, tailoring is precise mm-hmm. in order to look the way you want to look. But it just seems like these two things are working at such cross purposes to say, hey, star, Go out and go to two months of parties every single night. Be gracious, be funny, be stylish, be wonderful, be surprising in your clothing. Also, charm everybody so that you win the award. And do not deviate an eighth of an inch from the way that you were three weeks ago when you got it tailored. Please do not menstruate or otherwise have any hormonal fluctuations. It was, I don't have a solution and I try not to bring things up for which I do not have a solution or at least a real good rant. Yeah. But it was, it was a bit of a bummer. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, and we've heard this before, right? Like famously Bryce Dallas Howard has talked about how she shops off the rack because at a size six, no designers will send her samples. She has the pedigree. She is a name but she does not have the size, and so she has to buy in store. So I found it a little, just a bit depressing that still the sample size is only always a two. And I get that we are literally taking the dress from the emaciated 14-year-old on the runway in Paris and shipping it private plane to LA. But, you know, well, I, I really, that's why I really enjoyed what Jason Bolden had to say about it with respect to dressing Ava DuVernay, because Ava DuVernay is not shopping off the rack. Um, designers are dressing Ava DuVernay. In fact, she wears a lot of Greta Constantine, which is a Toronto design duo um, who, you know, we have interviewed and spent time. I mean, we're not friends with them, but in our industry. In the uh, actually, industry. they live in this neighborhood, I should say. There you go. Hi, guys. Um, so Ava DuVernay has worn a lot of Greta Constantine, um, and Jason Bolden here also talks about Ava wearing, um, from, he goes, she wears the row to Prada and it's all custom. Um, so to your point, if you're grabbing it off the runway, it is that standard sample, but for Ava DuVernay, even Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen are like, okay, we'll do a custom. Sure. But I guess that's the thing is that you're either a size two mm-hmm. or you're as big a star as Ava DuVernay, yeah. then yes, you can get uh, a custom gown. If yeah. you are the first 
female director that people have gotten behind in years who's a star, then yes, you can go custom. If you are less high profile than that, then you're kind of at the mercy of not being that. So, you know, it really makes me put a lot of things into perspective. I think again and again about Anne Hathaway in that last minute pink Prada that she won uh, Best Actress for for Les Miserables. And I feel like it's a bit of a losing battle. But I wonder too, what the effect of a roundtable like this for the first time that The Hollywood Reporter has done will have first on the first on the clients and then on the people reading, which is, as we've talked about in other podcasts, industry people and industry players are all reading THR. And whether or not this is kind of a little bit of a check, like, hey, this is what we're working with for the first time. We're kind of spilling our secrets. Could you please be more accommodating, not just to the designers and the marketers, but also to the actors out there. I wonder if some actors are reading this saying, oh, shit, I didn't know my stylist got, went through this. Probably. Well, on the designer front, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because one designer who has made a huge name for himself uh, by leaning into this is Christian Siriano. Correct. Who was a Project Runway star circa season, I don't know, four. I watched it. I liked it at the time. Uh, but he has leaned into, yeah, are you slightly less than standard size? Would you like to look absolutely fucking drop dead? I'll dress you. And his gowns are consistently among the most well-regarded and best dressed, not for women of size or for women who don't fit into sample sizes, but across the board. He's doing really, really amazing things. I always think of Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black as somebody that Mm -hmm. he's really enjoyed dressing but there are many. Um, So that's one designer who's kind of ahead of the curve in that way. Uh, But it does bring up that one other point, which the stylists talk about at length, that sometimes they go and ask about a given person who is as high profile as they should be or is as famous or as thin, let's say it, and the the design house is like, oh, thank you, but we'll have to pass. Mm -hmm. And that was your point about La Roche and Zendaya, right? that they created a whole look for her using no designer labels, using no names, but it's partly because he would, he was turned down every time he was looking for something for her from a major label. They were sort of like, who? Yeah. Disney what? Yeah. No, no. And now, of course, they're gagging to dress her, and he and she don't need to take them up on it, which is kind of amazing. And from there, because of his work with Zendaya, he also works with Celine Dion, who <laughs> we don't need to like, we could spend an hour and blow even more of our time on Celine Dion. But uh, this is, you know, one of the other things that come out of an, a roundtable like this is to show how these partnerships make careers. La Roche and Zendaya had a strategy for each other. And La Roche is now on this list and considered, and made probably the name that pops out most from, from this piece. Jason Bolden, same thing. Ava DuVernay, Yara Shahidi. We talked, about La, we talked about Yara last week when we were talking about style and what kind of deals she might make and partnerships she might take on going forward as she transitions from television star to whatever else Yara is can do. Well, star, star, right? Like yeah. not star of a show, but a star. Standalone. Yes, a one-name star, That's right. if you will. 
And to go back to the beginning, when we talk about stars and celebrities and style, he actually said that her Emmy look was her final princess ball gown moment. Because remember, this is a journey of a career. So she's 17. She was going to the Emmys last year. They together decided, this is the last time I'm going to look like a girl. Going forward, the clothes that we put together, the looks that we put together are going to be asserting me as a a woman. woman. That is the work of clothes. God damn it. Again and again and again. Anyway. Anyway. I think we could go on at length. Uh, I think that we have. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would call this at length. Oh, we're eleven thirty over our original if fifteen minute. Time. I mean, give or take some edits and whatnot. If you're listening to this, I'm sure we're only like nine over. <laughs> but the point that I think is most important is the last one that you made. That doing the sort of legwork and low pay jobs, conversely is the work that gets them into A, this article, and B, the big magazines and the profiles in Vogue and so forth that circle around to raise their rates and get them higher. So I loved closing the loop that that was how that ecosystem worked. Mm -hmm. And I could easily talk about this all day, but as we watch sort of runs in the coming year about, you know, style stars who emerge, it will be interesting to think about which stylists are behind that and whether it's one of these five or kind of more coming up. Okay. So that takes us to 12 minutes and 30 seconds over our 15-minute allotment for each subject. Now, if we were doing live TV, as you know, Duanna, what happens is live TV is separated into blocks. And when one block goes over, the control room directors and producers have to take time from other blocks. We I don't like not, this game. We will not be doing that, I'm saying, but… We may want to, in the back of our minds, keep an eye on if there is an area to, like, to, to, uh, to, to take from. We may need to take from any one of the four discussion topics coming up next. So you know what? We, at the beginning of that last discussion, we said we were going to only start the clock. Um, we were going to start the clock and then set up the story. Why don't we try setting up the story and then starting the clock now? Well, that's cheating. <laughs> that's utter cheating. <laughs> All right. We can include the setup into the time, into the next 15 minutes if you want. I mean, it helps us to know what it is we're going to do, right? It yeah. helps us to know how clearly we can stick to our turn. Okay. I'm not unhappy with our last discussion, though. I quite enjoyed it, and I think we covered all the points we needed to cover, which is the most important thing. I'm not unhappy either. I'm worried that you're going to take time from number (laughs) five, which is arguably my favorite topic of the day. Right. And block five is always the one that's on the chopping block. It is. Like, on the social, we have five blocks. Yep. And sometimes block five has to be dumped because we go over or we debate for too long in one and two. So anyway, just, all right, ready? Well, sometimes I just want to say, sometimes when you watch any show and you see them come back into the show, even a big award show, and they go, okay, everybody, thanks for coming back. Thank you and good night. That's why. They've run over time. Yes. They need to close it out. And so that block is 12 seconds long. What they're hearing in their ear, because in their IFB, that's what we call it, in in those moments, is 30 to black, 25 to black. Get the hell out. Dump. (laughs) Dump it. Let's go. Um, 
All right. So that's a little TV inside baseball. We are going to start the next 15-minute timer now. Our next topic is probably what's going to be when we consider 2018 in, what, nine months? One of, if not the cover magazine story of the year. Wow, that's a bold statement. Lena Waithe on the cover of Vanity Fair. Did we know this was coming? Was this a known thing that she had, you know, sat for a Vanity Fair cover shoot, et cetera? Sometimes you have a little inkling of that in social media in the weeks before. Did we know that was coming or was this a big surprise? I believe it was a big surprise in the grand sense of it. Perhaps her friends would have known. Perhaps Ava DuVernay would have known. Uh, but I don't think it, for two reasons, it didn't leak the way sometimes it will leak, right? We'll hear from magazine sources, oh, uh, the next cover of Vogue is going to be Angelina Jolie. There were no leaks to that level. And listen, up until this point, Lena Waithe may not have been a leak name right? The way that an Angelina Jolie would be. Hopefully that changes on the back of this cover and mostly on the back of her career and how she has become and is really right now changing the game. Um, But no, we didn't know about this. One of the things that I love is that this is the new, this is the first cover under the editorship of Radhika Jones. You remember that we talked about Radhika on this podcast a few months ago when she wore fox print tights to her meeting at Condé Nast, and allegedly Anna Wintour was scandalized. Anna Wintour, in fact, was delighted, obviously. Yes. Um, And so one of the things that I loved about Lena Waithe on the cover of what is the April issue of Vanity Fair is that in her editor's letter, she talks about how the previous cover, the Jennifer Lawrence March cover, Mm -hmm. was a leftover booking from (laughs) the previous administration. And I I love that too, because basically she's saying, only credit me for the work that I have done. I don't want to be associated with something that came before me in the sense of, um, I'm going to be clear here and tell you, what I'm putting my name to. And it wasn't just, obviously, Jennifer Lawrence and all that. You remember Vanity Fair got in trouble a little while ago, a few weeks ago, when they did that video, or maybe it was longer than a few weeks ago. Do you remember they did that video about Hillary Clinton and they got into a whole bunch of shit? I don't. Okay. I'm pretty sure we texted about it, but it was a video that was put together for their website and um, it was a video that was critical of, of, of uh, Hillary Clinton about, I believe, um, here it goes, um, Vanity Fair, here's a headline, Vanity Fair, sorry for telling Hillary Clinton to take up knitting. Oh, yes, it was I in do December, remember this. Yeah. Right? And they did this video where they were like, God, just stop trying to be in politics or whatever it was that Hillary Clinton was doing at the time that was clearly not knitting. And they were like, can you just, basically they were saying, can you be a woman? Can you stop making noise? Can you be quiet? That's right. So anyway, Radhika Jones, the April issue with Lena Waithe on the cover was really her coming out party. And uh, she's getting a lot of credit for this. Ava DuVernay shouted her out. Many people shouted her out saying, 
Uh, is this signaling a new era for Vanity Fair under the leadership of Graydon Carter? And I'm not going to complain about the magazine under the leadership of Graydon Carter because I can't say that there weren't downsides or mistakes made, but overall, I enjoyed his tenure. Yeah, it was of its time, right? Yes. Like, look, nothing sh- is or should be without mistakes. I want to say that as a blanket statement. If you are not making mistakes in your creative endeavors, you're doing it wrong because it means you're not trying stuff. It means you're not doing things. Being stale and boring is by far the worst sin. Uh, And Radhika Jones is clearly veering as far away from that as she can. He did step away at probably the time that he should have stepped away. I mean, right now, Vanity Fair should be under somebody like Radhika Jones. So not only do we have the decision to feature Lena Waithe, but we want to break down who wrote the article, what the article looks like, even what the pictures look like, because we're not just seeing a shift in who gets to be on the cover of Vanity Fair. We're seeing a shift in how all of it is presented. So you started with the writer, and I thought that was really interesting. Uh, The name of the writer is Jacqueline Woodson, Uh, She has written a lot of uh, kind of books for for young people and uh, and obviously like a lot of young adult fiction, YA fiction, and even I think younger, uh, often focusing on black young people, black children and their experiences. But she is not somebody whose name you know. And usually we shout out the name of a writer of an article that we enjoy but don't usually spend so much time on it. And I spent so much time kind of giving a bit of a bio because this article is so different in how it's written. It was the thing that struck me first and most. The article uses I all the Mm -hmm. time. The article talks about uh, Jacqueline talking with Lena Waithe and sharing experiences and so forth, but there's not a lot of we feel this way or we agree that blah, blah, blah. It's a lot of, I asked her if she didn't feel like this. And then I felt like that Mm -hmm. and blah, blah. It's very personal. It's a first person celebrity profile. And we don't see a lot of those or hear a lot of those. Often, if there is an I in celebrity profiles, it's been criticized for, often it's a man saying, you know, I tied the apron around her tiny waist I think that was a Mila Kunis profile, if I remember, and it's grossing me out just to say that. But it's not a lot about the writer's experiences and familiarity and connection with the subject. And this article is full of that. How I, as Jacqueline Woodson is the I in this this context, connects not just with Lena Waithe in the conversation, but in the general commonalities in their life. I was really floored by it. I really enjoyed the writing too. And, you know, and, and when you're saying that this is not Jacqueline Woodson, I mean, a name that we know, what you're saying is it's not a name that we know in the regular rotation of artists or writers who are commissioned to write pieces like this. Of course, people out there who read YA um, are familiar with Jacqueline Woodson's work. And we heard from you on Twitter and in our email. So what we're saying here, though, is they, they do have a slate, right? Like a slate of professional celebrity profile writers who transition from New Yorker to Vogue to Vanity Fair. And Radhika Jones went outside of that 
to select the best person to write this piece, which was about a queer black woman. And she chose another queer black woman to do the profile. And so the personal anecdotes that you're talking about that we're getting in this piece are directly connected to an understanding of Lena Waite from that perspective, which is what I found and probably what you're saying so effective in helping the reader get to know this subject. It was just the opposite of what you're always taught Mm -hmm. in journalism, in uh, kind of writing that you let that profile person be the profile. This is the opposite of that in that the writer is uh, contrasting Lena Waithe with herself all the time and it's so effective. Mm -hmm. It's so evocative and it underscores the point of the profile if there is one point, which is Lena Waithe is so necessary right now. She is the person who has not been here, who is now here to be the representative. Yeah. And it's, they get into Lena's relationship to that statement, which I found really interesting, but the writing underscores that that question exists. But the writing also underscores the actual thesis of the piece, which is for Lena Waite, the thesis of the piece is, I am telling the stories that have not been told very often up to this point, which is stories about Black Americans, stories about neighborhoods that I know, that I recognize. Um, And so, right, that's such a meta connection there. Let me tell the story in Vanity Fair of a queer Black woman being a queer Black woman. Let me write the show or the movie about a neighborhood or about a cast of Black characters. Let me write and direct the movie about the Black superhero. So this is not just a small magazine article that stands alone on its own. It's a reflection of the greater movement that's happening in the creative space. And it's so interesting because uh, let me tell the story is not just, hey, please let me tell the story. Again, as has been underscored by Black Panther, by, by so many things recently, let me tell the story because it's good business for everybody. Magazine lead times being what they are, it is the end of March this April issue is coming out. That means a lot of this was filed, assembled, et cetera, around the end of the year, which was relatively shortly after Lena Waithe won the Emmy for writing the episode of Master of None about Thanksgiving, which barely has the lead, Aziz Ansari, in it. It is the story of uh, Denise being a queer Black woman over many, many Thanksgivings in her family and how that story is told, and Lena Waithe wrote it, and that sort of, I would say that brought her to the greater consciousness. She points out later that she had been hustling all this time, that the chai was in action at the time. You know, I mean, really, I know. Uh, You get mad at me when I don't correct you, and then I correct you, and you're like, I mean, really? But it was, anyway. Um... (laughs) That little digression, if it (laughs) makes it into the podcast, that will be at Yasik's discretion. Uh, I'm just going to say that the shy is a hard mental shift when you're looking at the word Chicago. Okay? All right. I love Lena Waithe. I think it's wonderful. Shy, shy, like Kim and Kanye are involved here. It's fine. Uh, But yeah, despite the fact that she'd been working on so many projects, she came to prominence. She ascended above being 
a writer or a, a you know, an, what's the word? I'm, a supporting actor when she won that award, which was, again, to your point about her experience. Yeah. My point, and I made this point on the site a few weeks ago about The Good Place, uh, when you have authentically diverse stories on screen, they do well. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of coming from that run of success. And that is the underscoring to her point of let me tell these stories. It's because they do well, because there are audiences who are hungry, hungry, hungry yeah. for these kinds of stories that they haven't seen before. Yeah. And it's not just in the creative space in terms of showrunners and the those who actually come up with the story, but it also speaks to culture criticism. Um, and so when I say that this thesis is not narrow, it is quite a broad thesis for entertainment and the coverage of entertainment. I also mean, um, recently we, not recently, but last year, for example, um, at Sundance, The Birth of the Nation, The Birth of a Nation, that's Nate Parker's movie, came out of Sundance with all kinds of hype. Now, I'm not talking about Nate Parker's controversial past. I'm talking about the criticism and the acclaim that came around The Birth of a Nation after its premiere at Sundance. Many people looking back now are saying, well, at Sundance, it was a lot of white critics Hmm. pushing that film forward and giving it all kinds of hype where the day after it screened, people were calling Oscar, Oscar, Oscar. You'll hear from critics in the black community who would say, had there been more of a voice for us at Sundance and had more of us been able to see the film, we would have told you that it's actually not that great, that there are problems with it. That it was the kind of black story that white critics like. Correct. Right. And so I also, right now, one of the recent examples of this, and we'll see how this blows up or not, is going to be Wes Anderson's I Love Dogs. Or, sorry, Isle of Dogs. (laughs) Those are different. (laughs) But, um, so Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, it's Wes Anderson, it's apparently a gorgeous film, and the film criticism about it is going to be from certain critics. Ah, there's our 15 minutes. From certain critics, it's going to be, what a great film. And then from other critics who are of Asian descent, specifically Japanese descent, are going to be like, this is actually, yes, a beautiful film, but here's what makes me uncomfortable about it. And so to go back to our Vanity Fair thesis, we need more voices telling stories, not just in the story, but also in commenting on the story. It really has a ripple effect, this kind of representation and who gets to write about what um, in many, many ways across the business and across the storytelling ecosystem. Well, I have bad news for you and for Yasek, who was really excited when the timer rang because you've just brought up another great but huge point. Um, When we talk about the films that get to Sundance and the films that Uh, get into the festivals that get noticed or into the television pipeline, the gatekeepers who say yes or no have historically been white men. And not just white men, but wealthy white men from a relatively similar East Coast or otherwise educated, moneyed upbringing. So often the stories were being rejected at the pitch stage, 
at the financing stage because those gatekeepers couldn't identify with them. And that's another reason that this is so important, not just because Lena Waithe is a great storyteller, because she's telling the stories, but because she is hurdling over several steps in the situation, um, in the storytelling ecosystem, Mm -hmm. as you put it. She has a production company and has pointed out that anybody who uploads a script to the blacklist, which is a script hosting and review site, and gets an 8 out of 10 review will be reviewed by her company. Her partner is the head of development at Michael B. Jordan's development company. Mm -hmm. This is not just about somebody who is becoming a celebrity, which is another reason this is so exciting uh, that she's a Vanity Fair cover profile subject. This is about somebody who is mechanically, uh, systematically changing the structures to change the game. That's what makes her the real cover story. Yeah. That the fact that her face is relatively known is kind of the tip of the iceberg and maybe was the part that I loved best. Well, I love that her face is relatively known because I can't say that 10 years ago, showrunners and writers made the cover of magazines. Think about the history of the glossy and the the celebrity magazine and the fashion magazine. It's models, it's actresses, it's actors. Um, it's rare that the, quote, behind-the-scenes person actually gets to be profiled in this way. Now, I know that Lena Waithe is also an actor and that she, right now, is an actor in a big-budget film that's about to come out, Ready Player One, directed by a major, major director. I get that. At the same time, a lot of the function of this piece is not about her work in front of the camera. It's about her work behind the camera. And you talked about the photos that are included in this piece, and that's what's so fascinating about the photos. They are almost all in the context of her day. She watches TV at home. She spends a minute with her partner. She cooks. She chills on the couch. Uh, it's their very slice of life for somebody whose life in front of the camera arguably the least important part. Yes. And it's a major departure for what Vanity Fair is, right? You think of a Vanity Fair cover, you think either old Hollywood glam, a lot of satin sheets. Um, You think of red lips that are glossy, that the light shines off of the red lipstick. Someone coming out of a pool looking perfect. Yeah, that happens. There's a a lot of that. There's a lot of like chaise lounges, right? Like more chaise lounges than in real life ever. Yes. With possibly decrepit drywall breaking behind a ball gown. And and mansions. A lot of mansion shots. Like typically it happens in a mansion. um, And there might be like a bocce ball scene in the background. Trimmed, (laughs) like trimmed hedges. See, I favor the decrepit mansions, (laughs) the like the haunted whatever. Sure. Draped on the steps as you often are in your ball gown. You you get the you get the picture. And yet here in this in this photo shoot, it is pretty stripped down. And the at-home scene features Lena and her partner in the kitchen. The 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 fridge door is open. You can set us you can see a set of stairs in the background. I'm gonna be honest, her kitchen looks like my kitchen. In size, scope, and you might even have the same microwave. Yeah, like I'm actually thinking of recreating the photo in my kitchen because it looks like a townhouse. And when I say 
it's a townhouse or a duplex or half a house. What I'm saying is it doesn't look like a mansion. No, it's not. And even more hilariously, one of the very first things I was told about stage work or screen work or anything of the kind is that you don't wear stuff with writing on it because people will try to read the writing instead of actually looking at the picture or listening to what you're saying or whatever. She is wearing clothing that is absolutely covered in writing. Mm -hmm. There's like Chicago Bulls sweatpants and there's a, you know, a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, but it's a text heavy t-shirt and it just does not give a shit about the rules, which is really exciting. It doesn't give a shit, but it also still gives a shit. Like typically those sweatpants, those Chicago Bulls sweatpants that she's wearing, if I had to guess, and I don't know, like I'm not like an expert on Bulls merch, but if I had to guess, usually sweatpants like that, the Bulls, the B-U-L-L-S is on the back Oh, you think pants. she's wearing them backwards? Correct. Interesting. So, um, you know, but… Like, li- listen, this is not the whole point. I'm just saying that there is, she, I, of course she chose the t-shirt for a reason. Of course she chose the, the pants for a reason. She's from Chicago. Um, but this is a major departure from what we normally see in Vanity Fair. And I have to say, Radhika Jones is the editor who's putting that in her magazine, in her first feature, as if to say, this, hopefully, is what we're going to see more of. This is what I want to see. This is what I care about. And I hope that there's an audience out there who cares about it too. And Radhika, confirmed. 100%. As a, as a parting note, if I have a nit to pick with this article and more specifically with that kitchen picture, this is really crispy bacon on the plates here. <laughs> okay. I like a slightly softer bacon. Sure. Uh, and so it's your call. Was this uh, for the photo yep. shoot and thus they were like, the bacon is fine, let's go? Or is this the way Lena Waithe and her fiancé Alana Mayo like their bacon? Discuss. Frankly, I'm going to say that this was the way that they like their bacon. Having interviewed Lena myself, I know, like I… Not that I you am… You know her feelings on bacon. No, yes. I don't know her feelings on bacon. But, and I'm not Annie Leibovitz who did these photos. But she does not give the impression, at least when I was with her for the 20 minutes, that she is someone who's here to change her way to give you the moment. She's like, this is how I'm going to be. You move around me, Annie. You take the pictures that you need to be. I'm going to be over here making my bacon and eggs. Thanks. Right. But do you think she would be open to talking about softer bacon though? Because it's so good. (laughs) And stop. We are seven. We're getting better, Joanna. We are seven minutes and 50 seconds over our allotted time of 15 minutes. I have a proposal for our next conversation. If we go over, uh, if we hear the timer ring, I think we should talk about whether or not we have more to say. Oh, do you have more in you? Do you not? And maybe even we can like lay bets about how much more we have. Great. Uh, what is your problem, Yasik? Our sound engineer thinks that he can have a voice again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what he just tried to say is he's making like a huh face because what you just said, Duanna, was we're going to ask ourselves if we have more to say. And he's like, what the fuck? You two always have more to say. But… Anyway, we move on to our next topic. We are setting the timer. 15 minutes begins now. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think we were maybe a little conflicted about whether or not to talk about this, right? The topic at hand is Cynthia Nixon, who has announced her run for governor or a New York. And the question is whether it's outside of the realm of show your work in the context of Hollywood and show business and everything we've talked about. But is it really? Because of course, everybody and their brother is talking about everything that she has ever done, right? And it's not like Cynthia Nixon was on a legal procedural for six years. She was on the arguably the raciest, sexiest show of its time. Uh, I'm pretty sure we saw her topless several times Yep. Uh, in the context of the show. it She kind of had bared all on Sex and the City for many years. And now here she is as a, a candidate for governor. And I have many feelings. You? I don't know if I have as many feelings as you, um, but... I have been seeing the feelings of other people play (laughs) out. I've been seeing a little bit of her feelings and her reaction to other people's feelings. Um, So tell me about your feelings or some of them. Yeah. We only have 15 (laughs) minutes, right? Or whatever we have. Uh, Yeah. 1333. Let's go. There are a lot of people who want to say, especially now when we have social media and we're much closer to what celebrities are doing on a day-to-day basis, when they attend political rallies, they are told, just shut up and act. When they uh, offer opinions on late-night talk shows, it's, well, you're not qualified. But at the same time, the political figures in the United States are overwhelmingly elected because of their facial recognition uh, in, you know, in the name of not giving name to he who shall not be named. I won't. But Ronald Reagan was an actor. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who was the governor of California, uh, was the Terminator. The Terminator uh, was no less qualified. I guess the question is, if you are an actor, if you're an actor who is relatively intelligent, who cares about where they live. Cynthia Nixon is a lifelong New Yorker, like was on Broadway as a teenager-style lifelong New Yorker. And you care and you feel moved to participate in politics and policy, which is always something that should be celebrated, something that we want more of for everybody. Should you not, because you were an actor, because the way you made your living before made you relatively well-known or because you wore a lot of high heels or dresses? Is there ever a situation in which being an actor should make you select out of this scenario? Oh, God. I, you know, I can see both sides and I, we hear it all the time, right? We hear about who's qualified, to your point, what makes them qualified. Do you need to be a career politician and a career legislator? So, 
when, when we talk about that, when that comes up, I say, okay, what's the correct age to begin? Right. Where do you start from? Do you have to follow um, this schedule where you start, I guess, at the municipal level? Maybe. And then, Usually you start in law school, I guess, right? If you yeah. have big goals. Yeah. So is there an age to do that? Like, okay, so if she is, what, in her late 40s, 50s right now? Sure. And if you were to have her start at the municipal level or go back to law school first and get like a law school degree for four years and then start at the municipal level and you do that for what, two, three years and then you move up to the state level and then after the state level, then maybe you can run for Congress and after you run for Congress, maybe you should spend some time in the Senate and after the Senate. I mean, God, she's going to be 120. But yeah, first of all, that's an excellent uh, sketch of how that works. I'm listening, as I told you offline today, to the Making Obama podcast, which explains in a lot of detail how he ascended through each of those prescribed steps uh, and did it sort of at a really, really young age. And it's still long and tough and epic if you knew from birth, basically, that you wanted to be a career politician. But if you didn't and you cared about where you lived, and say you weren't an actor, say you were in, God, I don't know, marketing, say you were an elementary school teacher, those people are similarly, I don't want to say unqualified, but similarly new to the process. So should they get easier entry than somebody who is, let's face it, rich and famous? Yeah. And to that point, I don't have an answer to this question, right? I'm not saying like after the list of things I asked about timing and when she could possibly do it, I'm not saying I think celebrities should run. I actually don't know. I'm so fence-sitting on this issue. What I will say is that for those who are against it, that's what you just said about rich and famous. And when you're talking about being rich and famous, it means to, I think the underlying concern or one of them is that when you're rich and famous, you're insulated from a lot of issues that people who aren't rich and famous have to deal with. So one of the concerns has to be how much time have you actually spent with the constituents that you would be serving? How much time do you spend in the neighborhoods that will be most greatly affected by the legislation that you would support? And listen, the easy answer is, well, I'm going to, I meet people all the time and I hear people's stories all the time and I might not live their stories, but I have access to those stories. And that's a good answer and it's a stock answer. Having said that, what's the experiential response? You know, that in the heart response that you bring to representing a community. That is a legitimate concern, and I have all the time in the world to listen to it. I do too, except that 90% of the time, the politicians who are elected mm -hmm. are similarly utterly unfamiliar with those constituents. Yes. Are utterly uh, well-heeled. Uh, again, I, I referenced white and wealthy men coming from the East Coast in relation to uh, the entertainment world, but we know that they're pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, that it's far, it's far too rare a situation to have somebody who comes from the place that they are hoping to represent actually represent it, which is where I come back to 
Cynthia Nixon, as a lifelong New Yorker, you know, has a vested interest in the place. Look, I have no stake in this. I don't vote in New York. Neither do you. We have no uh, influence here. But I do wonder whether… Or really knowledge. Like, I mean, do we really know what the concerns of New Yorkers in each borough and in neighborhoods have? Maybe on a top-line level, but certainly we haven't lived it, so we get it. If you're going to yell at us and be like, you know, this is not what New York needs, you have a better idea, if you're in New York, of what you need. Sure. And this is, we should say, for New York State. This is governor of New York State, so that's enveloping much more than just New York or Manhattan or whatever else. Yeah. I, I, and what I, my takeaway from what you're saying there is, yes, it is a criticism that should be or can be uh, leveled at Cynthia Nixon, but not exclusively. Because certainly, as, as you say, and I agree, so many of the politicians on the scene in America and in Canada, really, don't exactly hang with their constituents either. Uh, I did like her response to uh, a criticism uh, she said that one of uh, Cuomo's top surrogates. Dis- she said that one of Cuomo's top surrogates dismissed her as an unqualified lesbian, and her response was, "I just want to say that she was technically right. That I don't have my certificate from the Department of Lesbian Affairs, <laughs> but in my defense, there is a lot of paperwork involved." Hilarious, very like tongue in cheek. Here's my question, though: If you are a celebrity, and you are very wealthy and very well-traveled and have privilege far above and beyond what is granted to most, there's that phrase about to whom much is given, much is expected. And every now and again, you have uh, Angelina Jolie working with the UN uh, or Emma Watson or similar. But if politics is not the way to use your outsized influence and facial recognition, what should they do instead? Say I am whoever I am and I'm pretty wealthy and I've just won a bunch of awards and I want to do something. Is it all just opening foundations? Is it scholarships? Mm-hmm. What do we think is like if we were advising a, a star who was getting kind of antsy and wanted to help their their home state, hometown, what would you prescribe? Listen, the easy answer to this that most people will, like, pull out of their pocket is, hey, don't run yourself. Throw your support behind the actual, real, qualified whoever who should be running instead, which the best example for this is Oprah and Barack Obama. Sure. Um, so that's your, your, your first easy answer. But I would say, and then without getting into politics, that… Barack Obama is the exception that proves the rule, right? And maybe came out with some star power. But anyway. Listen, when you're going to make a decision like this, there is a certain amount of ego involved. There's ego and confidence and passion and frustration in equal amounts, but there is a little bit of ego. Yeah. That ego ego is… I think I can do this. Anytime you put your face out in front of anything, yes, I can do this better than anyone else. That's right. So I guess to answer your question, if there is a celebrity out there who is going to make this decision or um, what do they do, the first, one of the first things to consider is 
Do they, in their private moments, sit down and say, yep, it's got to be me. I am the right person. I am maybe the only person who can go up against Cuomo or Clinton or Trump or whoever. I, I think we start there. And I wonder whether or not that is part of all of our discomfort about who gets to run and who is going to run, especially where celebrity is concerned. Because there's, there's, there's already so much ego, right, associated with celebrity. And you don't typically associate that quality, that word, with the school teacher who was a trustee on the school board, who then ran for whatever, trustee council, and then who w- then went to the municipal level and then Congress. You don't typically associate that quality even though that person has to have the same ego as Cynthia Nixon. And I'm going to take it one step further and say it was a long time ago now, but there were not these same types of criticisms leveled at Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was unqualified, so to speak. 100%. To run for uh, governor of California, which he won. Yes. He was married into a high-profile political family, which helped a lot. But nonetheless, there was none of this just kind of lazy browbeating. I think a certain amount of browbeating politics and a certain amount of mudslinging is par for the course and maybe even part of the game. But it seems lazy. Well, you know who understands this? I mean, obviously, more than anybody else would be Oprah. Absolutely. And so… You know, you notice, and I'm not, listen, like, whoever distributes the lightning bolts up there, take it easy, but I'm not criticizing Oprah here, and this is not meant to, of course, Oprah is going to do what she's going to do, but her language lately when she says, if God tells me, if I get the mission from God, I will do it, and I haven't heard it yet, that too is in a way to counterbalance the ego, the ego question right? Absolutely. So anyway, so that was what your question, what would you do? I I can't answer it. Or what would you advise, I guess, you know? But one of the things that I'm thinking about when we're thinking about the Cynthia Nixon thing and any celebrity running is that element of ego, which is part of the imagery of being a celebrity, but is actually part of the imagery, please let's not forget this, about being a politician. Anybody Absolutely. And to bring it back to your school teacher or your grocery checker or whomever, you know, we talk about how everybody should feel entitled to serve and to run. And you wouldn't want to let your relative lack of experience supersede the fact that you'd lived in the constituency. I'm almost done, timer. Uh, that you had experienced sort of what the, the voters would be voting on and therefore were qualified. So if you wouldn't let your job as uh, a grocery store checker or a teacher impede you, I'm not sure that you should let your job as an actor impede you if, as you say, you really have the fire in your belly and the confidence to know that you could be the one to do the job. And to bring it back to the, the theme and the reason why we do this podcast, which is about work. That ultimately is the driving force between all of the work that we do for those of us lucky enough to have a career that we want to have. When you're writing a story, a screenplay, a script, you have to believe that you're the one who can tell the story. 
Absolutely. I, go ahead. Absolutely, right? It's the quickest way to fail is to believe that Mm -hmm. you are not the one, that you shouldn't be telling the story. I have to believe every day that I am the one who should be writing this gossip story in, like, on Laney Gossip. I am the one, when I get into the chair on the talk show, have to believe it's, it's a critical part of it that I should be at the table for an hour on national TV arguing about fucking, I don't know, what? Uh, should, should there be flights family-friendly and not family-friendly? You know, there's an, um, any time that you're taking on a job and you're doing the work, that ego needs to be there. And, you know, buckle up because I'm going to draw a direct line from you to Barack Obama right now. Are you ready? Um, I'm bracing. But in the podcast, Making Obama, which if you haven't heard, it is so delicious. Really take take some time because it's just so engrossing. That belief, that confidence that he was the one to change some policies on the south side of Chicago to organize voters, then to become a state senator and a congressperson and, well, not a congressperson as it happens, spoiler, uh, and a senator and so forth, he believed strongly that he was the one. The only one. Is there ego involved there? Absolutely. But you need it to succeed. You will not get there without it. I love when you take the points from our podcast and relate them to places that are not in show business in real life, but let that be the one that you take with you. If you are aiming at the promotion, if you are trying to land the project or change the policy or file or whatever it is you're working at, it will not work if you are not absolutely certain that you are the one to lead it there and that your decisions about it are the right decisions to take your organization to the next level. Two minutes and 50 seconds over. We're getting better. All right, our next 15 minutes begins now. You sent this article to me, and uh, while enjoying the article, I was also thinking, you know, there was a time when you would not have. Uh, This is an article about pilot casting in Hollywood and how it's changed in the face of Me Too and Time's Up and also the ever-changing landscape of post-peak TV or whatever we're in now. Uh, It was a juicy read. It was. It's from The Hollywood Reporter, TV pilot season confidential, six casting executives on hiring and paying talent in the Time's Up era. So first of all, I guess there are many reasons why I would not have sent it to you in the past. I don't know that casting directors would be talking like this and not openly in the past about who they were going for, their top three names, who was getting paid what, and all that. But number two... I don't know, and you have been the one to bring up this point more and more, if there is going to be a true pilot season anymore, like shows premiere year round on Netflix, like you can actually just have a show show up in like November or I don't know, like second week of May. There was and used to be a schedule of shows came on the air in September, they wrapped up in May, and that was the standard. But with streaming services and everything else these days and HBO, a show can a show doesn't have to follow a set number of episodes and it certainly doesn't have to follow a set schedule for when it can come on. Even existing shows, The Game of Thrones, for example, used to always premiere in April. Last season, because of 
the fact that they needed a longer time for production. It premiered in the summer. We don't know when it's going to come back in 2019, probably April. So anyway, all that to say, this conventional pilot season, um, that was a surprise to me. Uh, If you're listening, don't adjust your device. You did not accidentally hit the 1.5 speed mark. That was just a marathon sentence uh, where Lainey (laughs) tried to get all the information out and still meet our time. Uh, This is fascinating because the entire format of pilot casting has changed. Not just that shows premiere all the time, but even though, as you say, shows premiere all the time and maybe the holding of the broadcasting is happening all around the, the calendar year, a lot of pilot shuffle and who's doing what and who's making which pilot still happens right now. And so these casting directors talk quite candidly about what used to be auditions for roles and what used to be people participating in auditions and seeing who was the right one is now almost uniformly offers to names. So by that, I mean, everybody mentioned in this article is a name uh, in terms of, for example, people saying everybody wanted Jenny Slate, Rosario Dawson, and Leslie Odom Jr., or Damon Wayans Jr. and Michael C. Hall, or Tatiana Maslany and Alfrey Woodard. People are going out with offers for their pilots, which ultimately are offers for their show. If you do this pilot and it's picked up, you make this much money, it's six years, it's whatever. There's almost not an audition process happening if you are a name actor. Yeah. And in fact, not only is there no audition process happening, it's basically like, how quick can you get the offer to us? Because we have five other people who want us to. So even the negotiation time is like, hey, what's your deal here? Uh, Because someone else is offering me more money. So are you going to pay up the money? I mean, it's really interesting how how candidly they speak about what 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 is going on right now, how the actors are leveraging their in-demandness um, and almost in some cases playing pilots and shows and offers off each other. Well, so here's one of the reasons why. The type of shows that are being sent to pilot are completely different than in years past. My favorite question in this roundtable is, what was the hardest role for you to cast? And there were two great answers. Uh, but the best answer is the 35-year-old female single lead in a drama. Everybody's working. Now, again, they mean everybody in the sense of actors you have heard of or who have been on a series before. Tatiana Maslany comes up here. Leighton Meester comes up here. Jessica Alba. These are all names that you know. This is not to say that a new unknown actor can't come in and land a role, But, for example, Hannah Simone, a Canadian actress who was on New Girl, landed a huge role on The Greatest American Hero, landed the lead. I believe there's another Canadian actress who's playing the second-in-command there, which is amazing. Uh, But so that takes a known actress, not a star, but a known actress, out of contention, and so all the roles shuffle again. And also not only are they negotiating and playing off these offers, but they're also getting more leverage than they used to that has nothing to do with money. So we talked about a few weeks ago the restrictions that are placed on actors. So if you're committed to a show, 
you can't do another one, those are starting to be relaxed. Um, in the past, they would say, no, 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 you belong to us and this network and we won't share you. Now actors like, well, you know what? I want to do your show, but I'm also doing a three-episode guest arc on this other show. And they're more open to that now. And that happens because of the new schedule that you were talking about. It used to be that everybody worked, as you say, from September to May. Then you either go away for the summer or you did a movie. But now if you are, for example, uh, doing a big arc on BoJack Horseman uh, and that is in production during your hiatus in the summer, then that's a created character during which time the studio doesn't own you. And now you find ways to do both or to do many things. And of course, there are a lot of series, acclaimed series especially, that aren't the 22, 24 episodes, right? I mean, Netflix shows are either 13, some are 8. Like if you're a Stranger Things actor, um, it's 8 episodes. It's not the commitment in terms of what it used to be if you were on like a CSI or even a Grey's Anatomy. I mean, that's one of the things that um, Ellen Pompeo was saying about Grey's Anatomy, right? She is Grey's Anatomy. It's her name on there. So she's in every single episode. And she said one of the things that she had to negotiate around was, hey, me being on the show basically limits me to just being on this show. Um, that is not something we're seeing going forward, in, at least as talked about in this article for a lot of people who are signing their deals and and make, basically putting it in black and white. Or if it does, uh, then you're going to be compensated financially as a result. She's not just limited because she belongs to ABC and the show's called Grey's Anatomy. She's limited because she's in almost every scene of every episode. So it's impossible for her to have a random Thursday off to go and tape something else. So she should be compensated. There's another factor that is even more exciting. Um, it's become a rule in a lot of places in the United States. I actually don't know whether it's a rule in Canada or not, that it is illegal to ask people what they made in a previous job. Mm -hmm. But in Hollywood, up until extremely recently, you used to be paid based on your quote. So your quote was whatever you made on your last job, maybe plus a little. And it is now illegal in California to ask people about their previous quotes, which means not only are people not going to be paid based on what they were paid before, but you're eliminating the precedent to say, well, we had to pay the male star more because he was paid more on his last job. And we had to pay you nothing because you were paid relatively less than nothing on your last job. Eliminating the quotes mm -hmm. is leveling the playing field in an unheard of way. It's a new law. It's right? a new law in yeah. California. And I have to say, the casting directors sound really annoyed by it. <laughs> they don't sound like this is such a great thing for equality. They're like, oh, well, now everybody's like making the same now. It's kind of hilarious. It is hilarious. And to the real world application side of it, I found it really interesting what they're saying about, because we've seen um, more and more shows shoot in Atlanta and in Vancouver and um, didn't Breaking Bad and in Toronto, Handmaid's Tale, for example, and designated survivor shoots here. And so you're seeing these series be grounded and, and, and take place in other cities other than LA. And there's a line in here about how 
they're in particular actresses who have small children and whose households are based in Los Angeles and they don't want to, where you have to convince them to go move for most of the year or a few months to Vancouver or Toronto. I, two things, found it interesting that it was, that was like the actress's concern. What, like actors aren't fathers? No, they're not. (laughs) They're not concerned because the wife in that scenario can just pick up and move. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yes. Um, and number two, it does – it is an area of conversation that doesn't get discussed enough. Like, what then, given this, I don't know, um, standardization that it is the woman's concern? I mean, I, I hope – it is clear that my tongue is firmly planted in cheek. Of course. Well, you know, but I just want to be clear. Yes. Um, So given that this is an understanding or an expectation, we do not hear a lot of talk about the reality of having to plan your career around the stability of your home, right? Or not, or or acknowledging the instability. I mean… Just to break it down for a second, let's say that you are one of these 35-year-old women they're talking about, and they're handing you the lead of a show that's going to shoot in Santa Fe. So say you're going to make, uh, call it 80 grand an episode, and they're going to make 13. That's a more or less standard right now. That's fine. Uh, But you have to pick up and move everyone. Uh, with probably two and a half weeks notice, if the show goes, you got to rent a place. I have no idea what a nice house costs in Santa Fe. Uh, you either have to convince your nanny or other childcare to move and pay that person a premium for also being in Santa Fe. Everybody's got to rent cars. You might need security, a million things. And I'm not saying that's not a lot, a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but you might get canceled three weeks in. And then unpick the whole thing. So what they're saying here is that actresses are responding to that inconvenience by saying, back up the Brinks truck. If I have other options here in town, Mm -hmm. if you want me to inconvenience myself, and there are so many roles now for 35-year-old women, something I never thought we would say, Mm -hmm. by the way, make it worth my while and make it very worth my while. Yep. And I will say that I'm not sure that that has translated to real-life application. And we hope, certainly, that it does. That, of course, the conversations we have here will more reflect not just Hollywood as an industry, but all industries. And what does that look like in the real world? Like, you get a promotion. Women don't often get the promotion up to the 14th floor, the 15th floor, or whatever, with the glass offices and the corner offices. But... What will it take? Because knowing you get that promotion or knowing you get partner or you make partner requires, as you just said, Duanna, your childcare, whoever that is. Ah, there's our timer. Your childcare, whoever that is, working longer hours or extending their contract or in some cases, your partner or um, your husband, if they don't make as much money um, as you, that family sitting down and saying, hey, is it better for you to just quit and I'll be the breadwinner? And then quit for what could be, as I say, a two-week pipe dream. You know, often now you complete at least part of a run uh, and that show goes to air, but there's still no guarantees. I think of my long-lamented pitch on Fox last year that was a big, big, expensive drama starring Kylie Bunbury 
that was canceled after a 13-episode run. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of back where you started. So yeah, asking your partner to quit their job, picking yeah. everybody out up out of their stability yeah. uh, to follow your pipe dream, there's got to be a financial incentive. Well, I think about, um, and this is a book I talk about a lot, Stephen March, who wrote a book called The Unmade Bed, a Canadian, they, he and his wife were living in New York. He was tenure track in academia, and she was offered the job of the editor of Toronto Life magazine. And so this book is about them. He gave up tenure track. He gave up his life in academia. They moved back to Toronto for a variety of reasons, like housing, being close to family. And but her, her job was better. Let's her, be real yes, here. Yeah. Her job was better. And he became the full-time caregiver. Um, and he talks about the challenges involved in that, the perception involved in that, um, the, the ways he had to change, the ways other people reacted to it. It was very interesting. Now, she is the editor of, uh, like, an influential magazine in Toronto, but… And uh, she, I should say, her name is Sarah Fulford. Uh, yeah. She's not just his wife, yeah. but uh, is, you know, a star in her own right, and that's why they came after yes. her. but that's a volatile business too, right? Magazine editing? I mean, granted, yes, there may be more stability. It's not just a pilot that doesn't get picked up. But you never know as a magazine editor, especially in print right now, with the budgets and the cuts and the advertising, you never know. Here's something I loved from this article that does have a real-world application that I thought was really exciting. They're talking about Bad Boys and uh, the television adaptation of Bad Boys and that Gabrielle Union was slated to star. And they said, we thought we already had our star in Gabrielle Union, which is a great thing to say, but she was determined to have a star name opposite her and she was responsible for bringing in Jessica Alba. And I thought this was really amazing. This is somebody saying, oh, well, we're good. We have everything. You've done it all right. And Gabrielle Union saying, as many of us, as many of you say in your work lives, it's not good enough. We need more. And going the extra mile and doing what it took to get the more that maybe other people didn't think was necessary, but that she knew was necessary. I mean, come on. Somebody's saying to you, you're a star, you're huge, it's amazing, it's great. And she's going, no, no, no. We need something extra. I have seen that play out so many times in my own work life. And you never regret going for that extra element, person, thing, client. And you often don't get rewarded for somebody else saying to you, no, no, it was fine. But you often don't get rewarded for doing that. But if it is a matter of ensuring your own success and the success of those people around you, it is often, not always, but it's often women who go the extra mile to do what they know is necessary, not extra or amazing. I really appreciated that part of it. It's a nice callback and compliment to the previous discussion we were having about Cynthia Nixon and having the ego to be like, I am the person for this job. It's only going to be me. And that is that Gabrielle Union clearly said, yes, I am the person to be on this TV show and I can do this role and only me. However, I can be better when I am also on this show with Jessica Alba. It's just smart business. There's going to be that much more column ink. We're, mo we're both names. 
People are going to talk about us together. There's going to be people who watch for Jessica Alba and people who watch for Gabrielle Union. It is a savvy business move, and I'm really here for it. And it goes also back to what you always say that you got from a friend of ours. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs you nothing. Mm -hmm. Maybe it does up front cost you something to go the extra mile, but the insurance and the confidence that it gives you to know that you've done everything you can, that to use a phrase that you have often used with me, that you've left it all on the floor is a satisfaction Mm -hmm. that she can take with her. If the show is not a success, it's not because she didn't do everything she could. You said that women are getting really great at this. Jessica Chastain, it's a different sort of situation, but Jessica Chastain did the same for Octavia Spencer for a comedy that they're working on. And Octavia talked about how Jessica went in and said, no, no, this is what's going to happen. We're both going to be in this movie and we're both going to be paid like this and it's going to be more than you're offering. And then they walked away with like a lot. Yeah. And it's covering yourself, not just because it's the right thing for Jessica Chastain to Mm -hmm. do or because she's looking out for her friend Octavia Spencer, but because it's also going to make her better in that film. It's going to make it a better film for both of them and ultimately contribute to the greater success of the movie, which works out for everybody. It's so elementary. Not something I can see Mark Wahlberg doing. Should we leave it there? (laughs) I'd love to leave it there. I'd love to come in on time or close to time, but I have to point out that the other part of this article that I love the most is that the casting director said the hardest thing to find was Asian male leads that there are a lot of requests for Asian male leads and that there aren't enough actors to fill them. This is, of course, a a double-edged sword or a bittersweet kind of comment because there aren't enough Asian leads because there haven't been enough Asian men working in Hollywood, and so there aren't enough who are skilled enough to fill those roles, but it means they're going to be going out and looking for people that they've never had to go and look for before, and that's Again, exciting. It's a game changer. It's wonderful. And I hope it's not a trend, you know, that it's just a thing that they're going to be always looking for Asian male leads. No, but again, in a situation where uh, pilot season is always kind of a, a war of attrition, not everything will go ahead, but from every project there are relationships and staying powers and people who are introduced as stars. I referenced Kylie Bunbury earlier, and she is one of the major actresses who is in play this year, despite the fact that her show was canceled. So uh, I think that even things that are born out of a trend give us new stars that we haven't been seeing, and I'm very excited to see who they are. And we're five minutes over there. Yeah, I feel good about that. I feel good about that. And now we come to block five. Begin. You begin. So uh, you sent this to me. You said, watch this video or nothing else will make sense. It's a video at the New York Times. Um, It takes place, um, I'm sorry if I get the wording wrong or the address wrong, but it's uh, 42nd Street, new 42nd Street Studios. I didn't know much about this at all. So I watched this video and it follows, um, 
It's one of those videos where you can see, well, you can't see, but the person's holding the camera and then they just like go from elevator up a set of stairs, from studio to studio. And this is where many, many dozens of Broadway shows rehearse before their productions. And then they'll, you know, they'll pop up words on the screen telling you who the person in front of the camera is in that moment, but then it switches so quickly after three seconds to somebody else. And then it's like pop-up video. Remember pop-up video? It was like that. But kind of like a day in the life, right? Like the camera is sped up at times, but it's kind of always rolling as you move from rehearsal space to rehearsal space. And we saw everything from Frozen to Pretty Woman to Hamilton to Three Tall Women to something with a conch. I did not know what was happening with the conch, but I'm sure I'm going to want to see it in a couple of years. Yeah. And it, it, it really gives you from the perspective of this building, this building is the, the center for where all this work happens before you see it take stage. Well, before and during, and this is the part that I love, obviously the Hamilton uh, rehearsal was most exciting to watch. And that was the touring cast rehearsing before they went out on the road uh, and getting familiar with the stage and everything about it. But these rehearsals are always happening when you are moving a new person into a role. You don't have them just show up one night on the stage and be like, here you go, they're going in. They rehearse with the touring company maybe before they appear on Broadway. They rehearse with a bunch of alternates or swings or understudies. Those are different, uh, by the way, and there's a whole world to be explored there. To be wrapped into the show at a given time or to take portions of the show on the road for touring companies, there are constant rehearsals going on. Obviously, if you're doing two shows a day on Broadway on a Wednesday or Saturday, you're not also in rehearsal, but the shows themselves are constantly refreshing, constantly tweaking. And as you pointed out, it's not just rehearsals and directors watching or choreographers. There are costume people there. There are props people there. There are stage managers and all the people who you never see Mm -hmm. involved in Broadway making constant tweaks and tinkers and a million things happening. And everybody's wearing like Minions t-shirts while they're trying to mount these epic productions. Well, what I like to, not to go to the end already, um, is that at the end of the video, it's it's about six o'clock and everybody's coming out of these elevators from whatever show they're working on, and they're going home. And it's not unlike what you would see at an office building that is multi-stories in the financial district, how during a certain period of the day, let's say between five or six or between six and seven, there is this rush of people who come out of work to go on transit and to take the bus or to get into their cars to go home. And it looks exactly like that from the creative class. So there are work standards that can be commonalities across any industry. Oh, yeah. And I think that this is, you know, anybody who's been on Broadway, of which I am not one, but they would tell you that this is as far from sort of celebrity and glamour as it gets. There's a scene where you can see people in the lunchroom, like, microwaving their lunches. Yeah. Um from home as you do, guaranteed they all took transit home or walked or whatever. These are working actors. There was not a single one who was a famous face, even though, of course, there are sometimes famous faces on Broadway. These are actors and they're showing up to their office. 
And it just so happens that their office is, you know, the eighth floor studio rehearsal space that's two floors above Hamilton and below Waitress. And that they wear like a crinoline on top of their Minions shirt while they're figuring out how it moves. But it's a great look at the fact that for this type of creative class, as you point out, it's just a job. It's just an office and just a place to work. Yes, it is a place of work. And we have been talking about work and war rooms. And, you know, thank you to those of you who forwarded this piece to us and you thought of us. Um, That is so flattering. And one of you, I believe, talked about the fact that this is not like just a war room, but a war building. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where... Um, certain productions are working side by side with other productions. That is, there might be, it looks to me anyway, where one floor is the home, the rehearsal space for maybe two different shows. And so you're not that far away. Like you might be, I don't know, whatever, frozen. And then across the room, because it's a huge room, across the room, the people who are doing the pretty, uh, the pretty woman production are working through their choreography. And then everybody meets in the lunchroom and that war room becomes the lunchroom where how did your, how did your choreography go today? Did you maybe get that step that you were stumbling on yesterday or were you, did you figure out how that line read is going to go? Can I help you with, you know, it's that. No. And because those people who you're talking about are very likely former colleagues, you might leave your role as a swing in Frozen to go and take the third lead in waitress and you might leave waitress to go and find yourself in three tall women or the hello dolly revival or whatever these are people who are always interchanging their roles and their jobs and who have a community of colleagues this is yeah it's basically having conversations by the photocopier it's just that maybe they're taping up each other's dance shoes yeah uh and that also you know in situations where if couples both happen to work in this industry or best friends or whatever, yeah, you might say goodbye to your spouse at 8.30 when you walk in the door and meet them again coming out at 6.15. Like, it's a it's a very typical, boring workspace. Just, it's like a studio lot, uh, as we've often heard Hollywood described, except vertical. Yeah. No, I really, really enjoyed that for the third week in a row, we can look to these spaces where the work happens, um, the room where it happens, but in this case, the building where it happens. Um, that to me was like, so I wish, I would watch those, the, these kinds of videos all day, even though, as you said, you use the word boring and in the moment, sure, but there's something really sexy about that workplace porn. You know, your, even the shows that show that, the newsroom for example, and that's what the West Wing was. Well, every uh, everybody who's been in or on a production of any kind will tell you that sometimes the rehearsal is terribly boring. Uh, sometimes you're in rehearsal and you're just kind of standing on your mark while they get your lighting right. It's really kind of bland at certain points, but what is essential is that everybody has to be in the room where it happens. Everybody has to be there at the same time in order to get it right. And that's sort of where that camaraderie exists, but also where 
the learning happens. That's mm-hmm. how you get there because in the boring moments, if you're watching the person who has the job that you want, mm-hmm. that is how you are more likely to be able to apply those skills and move up and move on. So it's career training as well as being a community. It's also the place where you're absorbing by osmosis. Well, to that point, today we met up this morning and we went to the Toronto March for Our Lives. Right. That's where we spent a few hours this morning before coming here to do this podcast. And on Friday, I read an article in Vanity Fair about the students who put this movement together. The title of this article is Inside the Secret Meme Lab Designed to Propel Never Again Beyond the March. So this article follows the students from Florida, and they are Cameron Kasky, Emma Gonzalez, David Hogg, Jacqueline Corrin, and Alex Wind. In the weeks leading up to March 24th, which is March for Our Lives, the biggest one happened in Washington, D.C., what these students were doing, they got together, um, and they don't say where, uh, but it is a mall. It sounds like, um, it says here, it's an in a nondescript strip mall. The location is closely guarded, and the old tenant's name is stenciled on the window. So Vanity Fair doesn't give it away, but Vanity Fair was given access to spend some time with these students while they organized and coordinated their movement. And we have seen how effective this movement has been, how long they've been able to stay in headlines, how they've created memes and been on social media and gained followers. Emma Gonzalez has started her Twitter uh, after the tragedy on February 14th. She already has over 1 million followers. And they are in front of the computer, They are talking to themselves. They're debating whether or not one meme is too mean, if whether or not it's funny enough, whether or not it's too funny and takes away from their point. This was their war room. And in this war room is where they came up with all the things that we saw today. All the hashtags, the speeches, Emma's speech is something that everybody is talking about, the six minutes and 20 seconds of silence. Um, So I found it so great to be able to have a Vanity Fair article that delved into the, the, the sophisticated level of work that these students who have demanded to be taken seriously put in to a movement that by all accounts has been successful and extremely aggressive in tackling an extremely controversial subject. Well, they use the phrase, the immediate chokehold that we placed on the news cycle to make sure that people would not be able to look away from this. But what I love about that is that in the short month since we learned who the Parkland kids were, since we learned what and where Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School was, we've seen them laughing a lot. We have seen them look like kids. It's not only about survivor stories and the trauma of having been inside the school while the attack was happening. It's also 
about moments of levity. It's about balancing, as you say, the humor and which is sort of the, they talk a lot in here about the skill of Snapchat users and like who's got the real gift as opposed to who's just generally amusing. Yeah. And I love that it is worth pointing out if you didn't know, we've mentioned it before, but the the kids who are, the young people I should say, who are at the face of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas movement are overwhelmingly from the theater program at their school. Mm -hmm. They are literally like going to go home and perform in the musicals. These are, to draw the point that I think you're making and I feel bold enough to do so, these are transferable skills. Yeah. You can learn to captivate the audience's attention from a stage and take that captivation and use it for something that is incredibly important while still maintaining your youthful demeanor and the honesty of of who you are and how you do it. I love that tie that you did there. I I do too, but I mean, it it really, it it wasn't a stretch. And let me read you um, a quote from the piece that really calls back, and listen, in no way are we trying to equate what we do when we talk about celebrities to this profoundly vital thing that these kids have been working on. But we're talking here about work processes and how they're transferable, to use a word that you just said. And I think we're talking about the ways in which doing work that is about people and feelings and characters can have an application beyond entertainment. But how all of our work is storytelling. Yep. So uh, here's a quote um, about what they do together as a team. And we're talking about war rooms and how collectively they have participated in this effort. Quote, Emma is wonderful at writing emotional speeches and getting the crowd on her side and cheered and pumped, Byerline said. But everyone has a different niche and the entire movement needs all of them. So we're all working in tandem to make sure that the tones that are needed are used. They're they're 18. They're 17 and 18 years old and they're talking the way, frankly, more executives need to be talking. And then that quote is actually followed by two photos. And I mean, again, remember, please don't get mad at us. We're just talking about best work practices. The two photos are the group of them sitting around a table, a boardroom with like boardroom style chairs and like a proper boardroom style table. And then there's a wall. And on the wall of wherever secret location this lab is, there's a wall where they've pasted and taped up articles and pictures and cue cards for their research purposes, to keep them organized, for inspiration, whatever. Not unlike the cards that you put up on your writing board, Duanna, or on your vision board when you're working on a script, not unlike the cards that we taped up on Oscar weekend to help the entire team, you, me, and Kathleen, that weekend get focused on the order of our articles. This is a vision board. Um, and this was a vision board for their movement leading up to the march. These are the similarities that occur in all work war rooms from an activist's movement to a screenwriting room to, uh, a, you know, a, a tech company launching a new product. All of that is shared. 
And I think the other thing to take from this, uh, because I think we're all happy to be inspired and schooled by these young, young people, is you don't need much. You said they're sitting around uh, a boardroom table with chairs, but like it's a it's a teeny boardroom with like crappy drywall in what is becoming a theme this podcast. They have the wall that you talk about with the taped up articles is similarly tiny and whatever the you can see the exit sign for the strip mall and whatever the previous tenant was. You don't need much. You got a couple of chairs. Yeah. You have a given wall and some stick tack or leftover Christmas tape. You can have a movement. You can make something work. You can have a revolution. I love that it doesn't require a ton of money and startup and whatever, that they're very clearly doing this with what they had available and that the movement that's behind it is happening because of how focused and passionate they are, not because they had all the ducks in a row for Mm -hmm. money and media and donations and all the rest of the things that came afterward. This came first. So we're going to link to this in the show notes. It's a great article to understand these amazing students and the work that they're doing, but also it's a great article to find common ground in all kinds of work and war rooms, and we hope you enjoy it. Okay. So in total, I mean, really, if we were doing this, we should add up all of our overages Mm -hmm. to see how much overage we had. I mean, mostly I just feel winded, (laughs) right? Like I feel quite uh, race having run. I really liked this. I quite like the, the format of having to sometimes look down, but at times I totally forgot the timer was running. And when the timer came on, it was like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind trying it again. Let us know. Tell us what you thought. How did we do on getting you back and forth on your commute this time? Uh, and send us all your arguments and notes and ideas about everything we've talked about. We read your emails. We send them back and forth at two in the morning. They're amazing. Check us out on Google Play and iTunes and Spotify. Leave your comments. Thanks so much for listening to us talk about work. Please keep working hard. And we'll be back next week. Bye. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.